and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, would you please open it to Acts chapter 1. We're reading the first uh, five uh, verses this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, may you be pleased to grant that there would be light in our eyes, that you might uh, instruct our hearts and minds, and that you might inflame us with holy desires. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In the first book, O Theophilus, oh, excuse me, let me get you up. Please stand. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You may take your seats. Well, if you're a skeptic and are here, thank you for being uh, present uh, this morning. Today we're going to take up three very basic questions uh, that will dog us all the way through our reading of the book of Acts. And so it's just best to face them uh, head on here. Isn't the book of Acts a little dated? After all, Aristotle uh, wrote uh, several books on science and uh, medicine. But if you were having a problem with your health... Wouldn't you want your doctor to look at something more recent? A journal article, uh, perhaps, certainly a textbook uh, that takes into account all that's been learned about anatomy and physiology since Aristotle's uh, day. Isn't the book of Acts out of date? Now, Luke claims in his introduction to the gospel, which is overarching, this is a book in, uh, in two parts. He claims in verse 4 that it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke is claiming here that he has written an accurate, ordered, historical account based on eyewitnesses. But there's more than a few scholars you could read who would say this was written decades after the events that it describes took uh, place, and it's really just propaganda. It's meant to make the church look good. So can we really take it at face value as an accurate historical account? The second question, can we trust it? And even if we can give satisfactory explanations to both of those questions, how do we know what we're supposed to learn from a story? Now, all good stories, they draw you in. 
Uh, you begin to identify with the characters. Uh, you get caught up in the conflict and struggle, and you feel release when it's uh, resolved. And it may be uh, interesting or even entertaining, but what are you supposed to learn uh, from it? Does God approve of everything that we read in the book of Acts? Just what is his moral uh, verdict on the stories that we uh, read? What's normative for the church of all ages? What, what is it that the church is supposed to take out of this as an abiding lesson and live out? Now, those questions we face really every time we open uh, the Bible. When we read about an event or a practice and we're told that God approves of it. Should we just assume that he wants that feature to be reproduced in us today? Well, take, for example, Abraham, who is commended by God for his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. Should we imitate Abraham? Or more precisely, if Abraham is an example, how do we imitate him? Should we practice child sacrifice? Or should we imitate his unwavering faith in the promises of God and uh, his profound loyalty? Likewise, when we read in the book of Acts that the early, in the early church no one claimed any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything that they had. What's the takeaway? Is it that what God desires is a radical economic communalism in the church? Or is the timeless lesson, the timeless lesson go deeper to the imitation of a heartfelt and radical commitment to the fellowship, whatever it may cost? Well, to each of these three questions, strong answers can be given. In fact, Luke has written uh, to answer these questions when he says his purpose is to give his reader Theophilus and us also certainty about the things he's written. So Acts is a book for skeptics. Luke claims that he's writing uh, history, well-researched history, based on the reports of eyewitnesses who were there, who experienced these events. And so how can we know that's true? How do we know that it isn't just a story, it's just historical fiction? Well, we can know because we can check on many of the details in the book of Acts. We know a great deal about the first century Roman Empire, a staggering amount about it, about the people, the places, the customs, and the legal proceedings of that time. And we can find five points of contact in the book of Acts with the chronology uh, of events that, whose dates can be established uh, from the first century in the Roman uh, Empire. Uh, for instance, Paul visits Corinth. It's recounted in Acts 18. And when uh, Paul preached the gospel there, it was met with such opposition uh, by the Jews that they brought a lawsuit to uh, Galileo, the proconsular of Acacia. 
Now, pro-counselors are appointed to that position for only one year at a time. And we have an inscription of a letter from the Emperor Claudius to Galilea, which allows us to date Paul's time there, because his reign was from July 1st, AD 51 to June 30th, AD 52. And this means that Paul visited the city. It took place uh, around the fall of AD uh, 50 because he was there before uh, this trial took place. And he left sometime during the spring of AD 52. In Acts 12, Luke tells us that Herod Agrippa I died. And we can place that uh, in the year of AD 44. And the result is, is that we can fact check much of what's recorded in this uh, book. From place names to titles. And when that is done, well, if you were to do it all, and I'm not going to lay it all out here, of course, even those five major things, the conclusion uh, by... Roman historians, uh, N.A. Sherwin-White, who's uh, taught ancient history at o Oxford University, put it this way, the historical framework is exact in terms of times and place. The details are precise and correct. One walks the streets and marketplaces, the theaters and assemblies of first century Ephesus or Thessalonica, Corinth or Philippi with the author of Acts. The great men of the cities, the magistrates, the mobs, the mob leaders are all there. It's similar with the narrative of Paul's uh, uh, experiences at trial before the tribunals of Galileo, Felix, and Festus. As the documents of these narratives belong to the same historical series as the records of provincial and imperial trials in the epigraphical and literary sources in the first and second centuries. His conclusion, uh, for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject the basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. In other words, if we should be skeptical of anybody, we should be skeptical of those uh, who uh, reject the book of Acts's history. We can also verify easily Luke's claims that his work is based on eyewitnesses. In the second half of Acts, the pronouns change from the third person, uh, uh, he and they, to we. Luke uh, himself was an eyewitness uh, to much of what took place in the second half of the book. He also had ample time to interview uh, Paul during uh, those years and further as he traveled from Jerusalem uh, to many of these uh, cities mentioned in the book, he had opportunity to interview uh, the key witnesses and collect, collect the materials for his history. And so we can be confident that what Luke has written here is in fact factual. The book of Acts is also for the 21st century. Last week I made the case that it addresses the deepest needs every human being has. For meaning, how to know our life matters. For community, that is uh, to uh, be known and deeply loved and, and to be connected to something greater than ourselves. 
And that happens in this book because we encounter uh, the living Christ here as he ministers from heaven. This book announces uh, the good news that he alone is the way uh, to God. He speaks the truth about what's real. Uh, He shows us what it is that gives meaning to our lives. And he gives new life and he brings us uh, into his family where we have deep relationships. All this is possible because of what he's done. The very beginning of the book, these uh, verses, Acts uh, 1, 3 through 5, is a single long sentence, and it's a summary of the gospel. It's a a catechism of the gospel. It captures the most important things Jesus did, that he suffered and died, that he rose from the dead, that for 40 days uh, he appeared to his followers and gave them convincing proofs that he was physically, bodily raised from the dead, and he ascended to heaven. Luke tells us the most important things that Jesus taught, the kingdom of God and the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. And he mentions all three persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, all in the span of one sentence. If you were to ask me to summarize the gospel in the fewest possible words, it would be the same summary Jesus used when he started his ministry, the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. The gospel is that the king has uh, come. And when someone comes to the king and submits uh, to his uh, rule, confessing that they've done these things, they receive new life uh, from him. And so this book speaks to everyone. But it also speaks profoundly to the church at one of the most crippling features for the church in America, and that is its practical deism. Now, deism is the belief that the universe reflects intelligent design by an all-powerful creator, and yet God's personal and direct involvement has ended when he was done creating. You can picture it like this. God is an uh, all-wise, all-powerful clockmaker who fashioned the universe, which is a big clock, He wound the clock up, and all its parts move in an orderly way that can be described uh, by uh, science and and mathematics. But God himself doesn't touch the clock ever again. God doesn't meddle in human history or in our lives. There are no miracles, no divine judgments, and there can be no salvation. Now, deism as a worldview is a footnote in the books of history. But Practical deism is very much alive and thriving in the church, even in churches like ours that take their stands on the Bible. Uh, Sound biblical teaching about God's involvement in our daily lives and the life of his church in human history really hasn't impacted us as much as we might like to think. Oh, we would never say out loud, well, God's interference and activity in in people's lives pretty much ended sometime in the apostolic age or or during the reformation or perhaps the first great awakening but surely sometime before we were born we would never say that out loud but before you push back too hard on me here just take a look at our prayer lives they're actually kind of meager especially if you were to compare our prayer lives to the prayer lives of our brothers and sisters around the globe. Our anxiety, 
our dependence on material resources, uh, not only to sustain our own lives, but actually as we think about what God would do through his church. Or our doubts that if we are consistent and loving in applying biblical discipline, that God won't actually use that to bring about repentance and reconciliation. All of these actually speak to the unspoken assumption that God is remote. We act as if Jesus wound up the church and just flung it out and we're on our own when we say things like, our church can't grow in this neighborhood. That person can't be reached with the gospel. That person will never change. I won't apologize till she does and that'll never happen. Fear and worry grip us. We wonder if we have a future. We wonder about what's happening in the lives of family members. Could any of these attitudes really exist in us and have the grip they actually have on us if we were fully convinced that Jesus is actively ministering uh, from heaven through his church as we receive uh, empowerment by his Holy Spirit? Why, surely his presence and power would dispel our discouragement. His authority would melt our stubbornness. His terrible purity uh, would cause us to shrink from temptation, even the temptation uh, to compromise our responsibilities. We'd be bathed in his peace and freed uh, from fear. And we would live with a childlike trust. Yes, there is a difference between the ways of God in Acts, as he acted through the apostles, and the way he's working today. God, in unfolding his plan of redemption, has done once for all unrepeatable things. The most important of those took place in the life of Jesus Christ. His birth, his death, his resurrection, his enthronement in heaven, his sending the Spirit, they're all unique and unrepeatable. And it's on those that our salvation rests. And the apostles are eyewitnesses to these. And their testimonies authenticated and validated by the signs and wonders they perform. And seeing this, we ought not to be less confident, but more confident that the risen Christ is now acting in his church as we by faith, empowered by this spirit, follow him. In fact, we should look for God to surprise us, for him to show up, to answer our prayers uh, and our heart cries. We should be far more alive to the presence and activity of Jesus Christ. And it should be reflected in our thoughts, in our attitudes. Acts is a book for discerning readers. It's a book written for discerning readers. And it's obvious that God wants us to learn from this book. It's a call for us as individuals and collectively as a church to reflect on how Jesus uh, works through his church, on its design, and consciously 
ask the question, do we fit or do we fail to fit? What is it God wants us to imitate? Well, there are two extreme answers. One is everything, and the other is nothing at all. So some portions of the church look at everything in the book of Acts, and they basically say this, if you really had faith, you'd see all these things happening in your church. They would say the baptism of the Spirit comes after trusting in Jesus, that church leaders uh, maybe should be chosen by lot, or that those who are filled with the Spirit uh, can handle poisonous snakes safely. Of course, no one actually applies this answer consistently because if they did, well, they would all expect to be visited by one of the 12 apostles or that when the church prays, there'd be earthquakes or when the Holy Spirit is moving, there'd be a loud uh, wind or that when preachers are arrested, that an angel will come and unlock their prison cells, or that church discipline would be instantaneously here. There are more people who really lean strongly in this direction than than over here. Um, But to say there's nothing in the book of Acts that God requires of the church that's normative for the church is simply uh, to misunderstand and misread the very purpose for which the book has been uh, written. The reason people do that Primarily is because they get uncomfortable with the vitality of the church we see in the book of Acts. It challenges the status quo of our own churches. When we begin uh, to see that what the church in the book of Acts is like, and we begin to make the comparison, we're apt to say, well, Luke has described well for us what the church was like in its infancy, but it's not our guide today. If that's what the church was like, yep, sure was. But, you know, really, that's all all unique. This answer lets us off the hook when we're uncomfortable. And it violates his very purpose in writing. Luke has written this book in an open-ended manner to show us that Jesus from heaven is continuing to speak and act. And while it's certain that the foundational apostolic period had some unique features, but just because it's foundational doesn't mean it doesn't have any relevance. After all, the foundation of any whole, it's not defective the church. And no doubt this is very threatening and challenging uh, to those forms of church life where the church functionally exists for itself where mission doesn't happen, or it's on the periphery of church. This happens sometimes because the life of the church gets confused with the mission of the church, which is to bring the gospel of the kingdom to people. The church is not the gospel. The life of the church is not the gospel. The gospel is what God has done in Jesus Christ for us. And when the gospel is embraced, it produces the church. This kind of church life manifests itself. But it is not the end. The mission is for us to bear witness. And when we do that, 
and the Spirit is at work, it will produce the church and the life that flows from the church. Now, Acts shows us a great deal uh, about how it is that the church ministered the gospel in the varying uh, circumstances as it encountered uh, people. There's a great variety of communication. Indeed, there's a lot of speeches in the book of Acts. It's a very important part of uh, the book. And this challenges us to think about how it is that we communicate. Because we see that as the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, it's adapted to its audiences. It's adapted to Jew and Gentile. It's adapted to the sophisticated, the intellectuals in Athens, and the simple farmers that Paul encounters in, uh, in Galatia. And uh, the gospel, in, as we encounter the book of Acts, is spoken in a language and in thought forms that are not only accessible and understandable, but it addresses the great needs and questions in the listeners. And so we must learn from that. Uh, we cannot communicate the gospel as if it's all one size fits everybody. That one size works in every place with every audience. That is simply not uh, true. But we get used to that idea partly because we mostly talk to each other and not to those who need to hear the gospel for the first time. The book of Acts challenges the status quo in the church frequently because God does something new and the church has to catch up. This is most notable as uh, the Lord Jesus moves the church further and further outward. The church is unprepared uh, for these outward movements. It doesn't anticipate these things. It's running uh, to catch up with what uh, Jesus is actually doing. And it means, among other things, that we need to be looking for what God is doing and seeking to cooperate with what he's actually about. We miss this sometimes because we have such narrow expectations. We have such a picture in our minds of what it actually looks like. We do this all the time when we pray. We think we must have this picture and we need to paint it for God, you know, and we go on and on and on about, God, this is how you need to handle this situation. And then, of course, we don't recognize what he's done because we're looking for that. And that's true in many dimensions of the life of the church. The risen Christ is at work, but he isn't going to necessarily conform to our expectations. And if we're only looking for certain things, we're going to miss other uh, things. And the life of the early church challenges much of modern Western church life, where it's individualism and relationships are superficial. Many Christians live as if participating in the shared life of the church, both in its corporate worship and its body life is, well, optional. I'll do that if I feel like it. None of the apostles would recognize that. The early Christians would just be baffled by us in that. Now, the only way not to be threatened by this book 
so that we'll sit down and listen to it is to first see what Luke wants us most to see. Indeed, he starts the book with this. It is the activity of God in Jesus Christ. God doesn't ask us to do something first. What he does first is he says, see what I have done. Principally, what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he has been present by his spirit in his church from the very beginning. And once we see that and believe that he's present here, active among us, we'll not come to this book being threatened by it. Rather, uh, our hearts will be made glad by the reality that God is, in fact, among us. And that the same about what we will find in this book and even what we've heard today today 